Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. All right, let's, um, let's pray and get going this morning. Our Father, we praise your name. We give you all glory. You are the the only one who deserves glory. And so, Father, we uh, give ourselves to that. And, uh, Father, help us to take our minds off of ourselves and put them on you, off of the earth and put them on things above. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth. And Father, we ask that your, your Holy Spirit would be working amongst us to, today in our hearts, in our minds, and that, uh, Father, he would continue uh, that work that he has started in us and see it through to the end, to our glorification. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you give to us and your mercies that are new every morning. And Lord, we, we again ask that this day would be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we've got a thick packet to work through this morning. Uh, hopefully you picked that up. We're able to carry it in. Uh, Today, we are on chapter 21, we're skipping over chapter 20, and we'll come back to that, um, Elder Foltz will take that up next Sunday, Lord willing. And so we're looking at chapter 21, which is of religious worship and the Sabbath day. So there are basically two, um, two parts of this section, of this chapter of the Westminster Confession, the first six, I believe, are on worship and the different elements and circumstances of worship, and then uh, the day of worship, the last two sections of the, this chapter deal with the Sabbath day and the Christian Sabbath. And so, but I want to begin with Scripture. I want to go to Isaiah 58. Um, verse 13 and 14, because I think these are key to us properly understanding the Sabbath day. And we are deficient in our understanding of the Christian Sabbath. At least if we think the Westminster Divines got the Sabbath right, then we're deficient and need a lot of, of uh, exhortation in that direction. And I think Isaiah 58, although it's, it's not uh, in the law proper and the commandments and the, the, the fourth commandment, it, uh, it brings together uh, the purpose of the Lord's day and the promises that God gives for those who keep his Lord's day. Says this, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord 
and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Glorious passage, isn't it? That statement, make you ride on the heights of the earth, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds great, right? Um, like the highest roller coaster you could think of, and, and there you are enjoying it, not wanting to vomit <laughs> because of the height. Um, anyway, we'll get to the, maybe, we'll get to the Sabbath day if we can get through the first seven sections of this. And we start with worship, and as the divines, the Westminster divines, and that's the word that has come down to us for those pastors and elders who put together the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, perhaps it's too much, too adulatory or too uh, something like that to, uh, to them. They were just uh, sinners like us, but uh, they did some, they did uh, good work, and they were ordained men who did this work. And so, the divines, the Westminster divines, as they often do, they talk about uh, the two sources of knowledge. And the first is creation, right? The light of nature, right? So, what nature illumines, what nature um, opens up for us is one thing. And then on the other side is the Word of God, which is the revealed will of God, right? And so there are things that creation teaches, and there are things that Scripture teaches, and there are things that creation doesn't teach that Scripture teaches. And one of those things um, has to do with worship. Now, Creation tells us that there is, well, I'll read it. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable, notice that, but, but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Okay, so a lot to take in there. So what does creation teach us? Can someone uh, summarize that long phrase, that sentence? What does creation teach us? There is a God. Yep. But more than that, it doesn't just teach us that. Okay, that we ought to worship him, that he is Lord, that he is sovereign, right? that he should be loved, feared, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, soul, and with all the might. Right? So it shows us there is a God and that he has power and reign and authority. Right? But 
it does not stop there. I mean, it stops there. That's what it gives to us. That's the whole of it. And then we have to go to Scripture to figure out the specifics of how that God has told us how to worship Him. And so we don't get to make stuff up when it comes to worship. Although the church and certain segments of the church have delighted in making up things that are not found in the Word of God. Evangelicals love to do it, right? Mega churches love to do it. They'll do anything, right? They'll do anything in a worship service. They'll put up big screens and show a movie. You know, they'll sing ACDC with different lyrics, whatever. They, you know, they'll ride a motorcycle through the sanctuary. Um, they'll do gimmicks, right? There is, they treat holy things very lightly, okay? But Roman Catholics do it as well. Right? Roman Catholics have, have concocted um, ideas of their own based upon the traditions of man and not the Word of God. And so, um, and Lutherans have a slightly different version of how they regulate worship than the Reformed do. And so the, the Lutherans let a lot more in through the door than the Reformed would. And so, um, this whole first section is defining what has come to be known as, yeah, all right, good Presbyterians, there we go. Tighten up your bow ties while you say that. I'm getting there. Hang on, you're way ahead of me. Chill out. Um, so the regulative principle of worship, right? Yes, thank you. You did tighten your bow tie. We believe that God determines by positive command everything that should be done in worship. And if it's not given to us by positive command, we don't do it. The Lutherans put forward what's called the normative principle, right? And they, they, they say, we'll do everything that's commanded and anything not forbidden. Anything that's not expressly forbidden, they'll allow to come to worship. We say, no, we'll do everything that's commanded. They say, we'll do everything that's commanded plus whatever is not explicitly forbidden. And so... That has been a divide um, from, uh, from fairly early on in the, div in the division between the Lutherans and Reformed, right? And so um, the, we, we want to find a positive command in Scripture for what we do in worship. That is the regulative, regulative principle of worship. And so look at, look at what it says, the second, what is this, two sentences? The second sentence. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. He has determined in his word how he will be worshiped. Right? That's one of, the, one of the major purposes if not the major purpose of the Word of God, is so that God can say, 
here's how I desire to be worshipped. Here's what acceptable worship is. Here's how you will do it. Right? And so we get all of that laid out in Scripture. And some things change. Right? Some things change over the course of redemptive history. But the same sort of, same sort of uh, redemptive thrust. Right? There, we don't sacrifice animals anymore, even though God instituted that. And there's a reason for that. Jesus came and ended that. Jesus was the final sacrifice. Read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews will open that up for you, right? We don't have to repeat sacrifices that are ineffectual every year, year after year, because Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, has been sacrificed. One sacrifice to end them all. So there's that instituted by himself, and then notice the next word, and so limited by his own revealed will. It's limited. We can't bring in things that we think might be a good idea if God hasn't told us to do those things, right? I mean, we could bring in, we could bring in, um, oh, we could bring in virtually anything. I mean, we could bring in Buddhist practices that seem, you know, we could, we could plant a tree and we could bow down before a tree up here. We could, uh, uh, it's, it's, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, we could uh, preach on the, um, you know, on, on poetry written by a man. Do homilies that have nothing to do with the Word of God. And so it's limited by what God has revealed, his, his revealed will, that's his word, that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men. You don't just get to make things up. You don't just get to, hmm, I wonder what the people want. I think I'll think about that and I'll get creative and I'll think of things that will, will bring people into the sanctuary and will intrigue them. And okay, it may not be in the, in the Word, but my heart's in the right place. I just want to worship God. So you start using your imagination. You start concocting ways to worship Him. And God thinks it's an abomination. You can't worship according to the suggestions of Satan, which I would imagine when you disconnect yourself from the Word, your imagination is the is what Satan is using to suggest to you certain things that should be done. Under any visible representation, right? Under any visible representation. We are not to have any visible representation that we worship by. We're not to, and that's the second commandment, right? That's the how of worship. You're not to make images of God and bow down before them. You're not to worship images. And so they were very express about that because what had the whole world been going after but images, worshiping images. And not even images of God, images of Mary, right? Images of saints, images and relics. Right, placed before you that you're supposed to reverence. 
And they make some sort of, the Roman Catholics make some sort of distinction between the worship you give to God and the worship you give to Mary or the worship you give to idols and the worship you give to God. But it's really a difference without distinction. We say don't give any honor to that which is, is not God, right? Or any other way not prescribed. Prescribed. Is that word important? Prescribed, positive command. It doesn't say prohibited. It says prescribed, a positive command. Notice Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20 down below in the proof texts uh, about images. I just wanted to pull that out. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude. You saw no image on the day that the Lord spake to you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you corrupt yourselves and make yourself a graven image. The similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is in the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters. You're not to make any of these images for worship, right? Not of God, not of creatures. And so what does Israel do up the road just to peace? They craft what? A golden calf by which they wanted to do what? Worship the one true living God. They weren't worshiping the calf. They were using the calf to worship Yahweh. And God had Moses grind up that image, feed it to him so they would defecate their God. That's how, much, that's how highly God thought of that. That little little bull that popped out of the fires, right? Okay, so this is the regular principle. Um, the normative principle, again, is different. Um, the, the Lutherans are just, they're willing to go a step beyond it and, and say that we can do anything that's not really just expressly forbidden, which opens the doors quite a bit more. All right. Number two, religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but of Christ alone. Before the fall, think of this, worship was immediate. It was without mediator. There was no need for a mediator because man was holy, God was holy, and God walked with them in the garden, right? It was immediate. They didn't have to have any intercession. Now, after the fall, because we are sinners and we have indwelling sin even after regeneration, we need a mediator. We need someone to step in between and arbitrate between holy God and sinful man. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your mediator. He is the only reason you may properly worship God and come into his presence. And that post-fall is the only way he may be worshipped. You have to have a mediator. Sin has made immediate worship of God impossible. 
And, and think about it. When Adam sinned, God's presence withdrew. And man's heart was darkened, his mind, his soul, his affections, all those effects of sin. And so there was an impasse. God withdrew. Man didn't go after God. And so there had to be, there had to be a mediator. And that mediator was the Lamb of God crucified before the foundation of the world. You can go down to section E below and, and read about that mediator in Scripture. Section 3, prayer turns to prayer. So now we're getting into some of the elements of worship, these things that are commanded in Scripture that are to do in worship. Prayer with thanksgiving. Being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men and that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of His Spirit according to His will with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and if vocal, in a known tongue. So prayer, prayer is one of the important parts of worship. Prayer is what God has commanded us to do. We are to come to him with thanksgiving, right? important part of prayer. We get into our laundry list of prayer instantly and do not, do not pause to give thanks to God, which means that our memories are very short about the things that we've prayed about and that God has answered. Don't do that. Just pause before you go into prayer and think about what you've been praying about that God, and you've seen God work. And then go into prayer with those thanksgivings, saying, thank you, Lord, for this and this and this, after you've prayed and glorified his name and honored him for who he is. Always adore in your prayer first. And then thanksgiving, right? And so we're supposed to make our prayers in the name of the Son. And so as a practice, you know, I think, I think there are pattern prayers that, that don't show these words, like the, the Lord's Prayer. But I finish all my prayers in the name of the Son. I address all of them to the Father as, as a discipline to myself and a conviction from Scripture that, we're, that Jesus told us to ask in His name. And so that's why I conclude my prayers in the name of the Son. And... Um, and we're addressing ourselves to the Father because the Father is the one who gives good gifts to his children. Right? So we, we address the Father through the mediator and conclude by praying in his name. In the power of the Spirit, we, we, we hope with the Spirit dwelling in us that that Spirit is groaning uh, you know, those deep groans for us, even as we pray. We are not to pray for things that are against Scripture. Don't be stupid in your prayers and ask for things that God forbids to you by His revealed will. Uh, you, you can't pray that way. Um, 
and you're to pray with understanding, with reverence, with humility, fervency, faith, love, perseverance. You're to continue in prayer. You're, you're to persevere. You're to, in a sense, be um, persistent to the point of nagging God in your prayers, right? You are to give God no rest because you know that He's the only one who can properly order the things you're laying before Him. And then if vocal in a known tongue, and the, I, I would say that the confession of faith is a cessationist, uh, holds the cessationist view that the, this gift of tongues ended with the apostolic age. And, uh, and so I think that's uh, what they're making reference to here. You go to 1 Corinthians 14, 14, for if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Right? If you pray in an unknown tongue and people are listening to you and they don't understand it, well, it's, it's fruitless. And so one of the purposes of our prayers is so that others can understand what's being lifted before God and we can add our amens. Right? It's not merely this um, secret language that no one hears and goes before him, but um, that's all I'll say about that today. Four, prayer is to be made for things lawful. There we go. Again, that statement, things lawful. And for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Oh, oh man. Okay. Renton, please explain that last phrase. <laughs> um. Well, let's start with the easy things. We're to pray for the living. We're to pray for those who will be living in the future, right? We're to lift up future generations. You should pray for your, your obviously your children, but your children's children and your children's children's children because God remembers those prayers, and God is, is outside of time, right? And God will, um, will bless your children's 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 through your prayer. And so make sure you're praying for future generations, future generations of the church, future generations of this church, future generations of your own family, um, we, and, and future leaders, those that God will raise up to rule over us in the civil realm. Be praying about that, certainly for the living and those who will live hereafter, but not for the dead. And we don't pray for the dead because you die and face judgment, right? You die and you face the judgment and God pronounces his judgment. And at that point, there is uh, your, your, your um, future is fixed, and so the prayers of the people will be ineffectual. Now, obviously, um, this is taking a swipe at the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, right? And praying for the dead would be one of those things that we would say has been manufactured and it goes beyond Scripture and is one of those imaginations that shouldn't enter into worship because God is not anywhere taught this to us. It is not His revealed will. 
apparently the best, the best um, support for purgatory is in the apocryphal books, um, which are not Scripture. And so, um, this forbids that practice. But think about how much wreckage came to the church because of the practice of praying for the dead. St. Peter's in Rome is built because of that principle, right? Tetzel going around telling people that if they put money in the box that, you know, mass will be said for your, your deceased uh, mom who's got millions of years to burn off her sins in purgatory and if you give money, we'll pray and have a mass. It'll shorten her time. It's wicked. It's wickedly terrible, right? But it's, it's really imaginative. It's a good way to fund St. Peter's, isn't it? And then Luther comes along and says, takes a stick to them, right, in the 95 Theses. And he's like, if uh, you've got enough money to release everybody from purgatory, why don't you use your money that way? <laughs> Oh, all right. So um, when it gets to um, when it gets to the this, we are not to pray for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin of death. They're making an interpretation um, on on First John five. If any man sees his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. And um, the sin unto death is, I think, um, persisting in sin and unbelief until death. Right? It is the persistence of, it is the hardness of heart. And certainly it, it usually looks like this. It is somebody who demonstrated, had some sort of profession of faith, was in the church, professed faith. Um, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and 6 that talks about the, them tasting of the things of God. right? And then, then they... Um, they turn away from the Lord and become a a vocal opposition to God, a God-hater, living their life so that they can denounce the things of God. And some of you know people like that. Some of you know people like that. And I think, um, you know, I think that's what this sin unto death means. Now, let me read some Williamson and see if this helps. He explains it this way. If this means only that a person persisted in sin and unbelief until he died, then the statement would merely repeat the prohibition of the prayer of the dead. But if it means something else, it must be asked, what is the sin designated? And how may it be known when someone has sinned the sin unto death? If there is such a sin as distinct from persistent unbelief, it must be the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12. This is willful and malicious refusal of pardon upon the terms of the gospel offer. It is to sin willfully against the knowledge of the truth and to suffer the infliction of divine hardening, which is final and incurable. Paul says of such persons that their, 
their folly will be manifest to all. It will be visible. You'll be able to see this. We believe that there is a sin properly designated, the sin unto death. We believe that it is of such a nature that it is manifest to all. When someone who has known the truth, like Judas, professed faith in Christ and walked in the company of the Lord's people, makes deliberate and open apostasy from Christ, clear for all to see, it is right to pray against rather than for such a person. It is important to pray for all others, but there is a sin leading to death, says John, and the Lord does not say that we should pray for such as are guilty of it. Okay, so that's where I'll leave that. I'm not going to say much else. You can study that verse. It's a very difficult verse, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the sin unto death. Um, you, You can go study the Reformers, and they probably have all kinds of different things to say. Right? It's one of the harder passages of Scripture. I think this is in the right direction. It's open apostasy to the point where somebody becomes a constant blasphemer. Right, And at that point, you should pray against that person, not for that person. Right, And you are acknowledging that they have been, um, they have been given over to that sin. All right, five. Some more elements of worship. The reading of scriptures with godly fear. The sound preaching and conscionable hearing, right? So not just the preaching of the word, but the hearing, conscionable hearing of the word. In obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence. Singing of psalms with grace in the heart. As also the due administration were the receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ. Are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Besides... Beside religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in there several times and seasons to be used in an holy and religious manner. So they say there are ordinary things, there are extraordinary things. There are ordinary things and then special things. The ordinary things that we do every week are reading of the word, preaching, hearing, singing of psalms uh, with grace in the heart, Uh, the administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are all the ordinary things we do. But then there are some times when we take oaths and vows, um, wedding vows, membership vows. Um, When we fast and when we give thanks, uh, have special services of thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving to God for his works that have been evident in... uh, in our time, things like that. Any questions about those? All right, six. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel, either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed, but God is to be worshiped everywhere in spirit and truth as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calls thereunto. And so um, you don't have to make pilgrimages. You don't have to turn and face Jerusalem. Right? You, that, that, you no. Know. 
not commanded, not um, how we worship. We worship by the Spirit in every place, right? And so we don't have to have we don't have to have a cathedral. We don't have to have tall ceilings. We don't have to even have a building, right? We could go out and have conventicles in the woods if need be, and God would be pleased with that. We don't need to be surrounded by finery. We don't need to uh, not be surrounded by finery, right? And so um, we can worship anywhere, and we don't have to um, worship in specific directions God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, in the spirit, by the word. And then they lay out those three practices, private, by yourself, family, and public, all of which should not be neglected, the height of which is the public assembly of the people of God, right? There's a a special um, solemnity to those public assemblies, and they are not to be neglected. All right, so that's the how of worship, how we do it. And now I have seven minutes to tackle the Sabbath. Simple. Well, here's what I'll say. There are varying views of the continuing validity of the fourth commandment. What's the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day? To keep it holy? Yeah. And so there have been various views of this and some will go to the passages like in Colossians that say let no man judge you about the the keeping of days and Sabbaths and feasts and festivals and say there's no more you know the fourth commandment was completely ceremonial in Jesus it went away just like all the Old Testament sacrifices the Sabbath is gone right And so there are some who do that. I would say that um, if you don't have a view, um, I would say that that's the standard civil religion view of American Christianity. There is no Sabbath. There is no Lord's Day. It doesn't matter. If you want to go boat on Sunday, go boat on Sunday and come to worship on Saturday, that sort of thing. It's like standard fare. Um, so there's that view. Then, then there's the view of the Westminster Divines where they call the Sabbath not merely the Lord's Day, but the Christian Sabbath. That there is a one-to-one correspondence going on here. We keep the Sabbath day, right? There are some ceremonial aspects to it, but the, the, it's in the moral law God said his moral law continues and applies everywhere, and it it continues on. Then there's a a view in the middle that that sort of wants to relegate, um, you know, that will say it is important that we we have a day for worship, but um, it's very loose as far as the specifics, sort of running in the middle. And so... um, Let me read this section, and we'll see what they say. 
as is the law of nature, that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath, to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed to the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Okay? And let's read the next section. The Sabbath is then to be kept, the Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe in holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy, and I would add their um, duties of piety as well, um, to cover what pastors do on the Lord's Day, pastor's work on the Lord's Day without violating, violating the fourth commandment. Um, so, what stands out to you in that? Those two sections. Anything strike you in those? Okay, yeah, it, it talks about um, how to observe the Sabbath day. And one of the things that it says is you've got to prepare for it. You can't crash into Sunday mornings. You actually prepare for it the night before so that you can free yourself from having to worry about things that you normally worry about on the other six days, okay? And so there's, and I, I could talk about our specific practices in the Dion household about how we prepare for worship. You guys probably have the, your own ways in how you prepare for worship, or you don't, and you should. So that does stand out to me too. What else? Yeah, that's not controversial. That's like, duh. I mean, we've all got that down at this point. If you have, con if you have trouble with that, then, then we'll talk about it. It's very important. But... I, oh, the change from Saturday to Sunday. Public and private exercises of worship is set out there. Yeah? Come on, guys, this is not what stands out to me. Okay, thank you. Okay, I mean, come on, guys. That's the hard part of this, right? I mean, think about that. They, they are telling us to, to observe a holy rest all the day from our own works, words, and thoughts about worldly employments and recreations. 
not only not working, not only not recreating, but not talking about those things and not thinking about those things. Why? Because your mind is engaged in something that's far more glorious, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're like, no thanks. I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, fight my sin as I look at, you know, Facebook and feel jealous about where everybody's going and what they're doing. How happy they all look. You know? And we can't imagine spending over an hour and a half in worship on the Lord's Day. Can we? Okay, I'll speak for myself. I can't imagine that. Okay? And here they are saying, no, 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 no. If there's anything about the Sabbath day that that's clear from Scripture is it's to be a day of worship and rest from everything you normally do the other six days. Things that are lawful on those six days are unlawful on the, the Sabbath day. We don't buy it. We don't believe that. We simply don't believe that. We don't. And this is such a challenge to me that I, wanna, I want to, like, um, I'd, say, I'd say 70% of the men in Evangel Presbytery take an exception at this point in the confession. And they say, no, I don't think that's Scripture's teaching. And I'm like, oh, brother, the more I read about it and the more I read these angry Scottish guys about it, the more I'm convicted that they're right. And then I'm like, but my practice, I don't want to change my practice. Practice. <laughs> what are you talking about practice? Um, and so, and so I, I'm going to preach on the Sabbath day sometime this year. I'm still reading on it. I'm going to preach on it at some point. I'll break away from John and we'll go to this because we're just brushing up against it today, but it, that's why I read Isaiah 58 at the beginning. God says, if you resist your pleasures and do what I command you, I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Right? We're, we're, so, we're so involved in worldly recreations that none of us have ever gotten on that roller coaster of God's love and worship. Right? We're so fixated on the world that we haven't ever experienced what Isaiah 58 lays out to us as a promise. And so we've got like muscles to build. We've got to like build worship muscles. We've got to build practices that honor God. Right? And then all of you with little kids are like, what in the world? No way. Uh-uh. I can't get through a Sunday without putting my kids in front of three hours of videos. There's no way. I don't know. I, we don't know what we can do if we haven't tried it. We don't know what joy will come from it and what power the Lord will give to us unless we give ourselves to this. But some of you will, will at this point, become 
like that first group, oh, it's ceremonial. You know, forget it. Uh, it, it, it you know, Jesus said, you, you know, the, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? And so it's like, I'm not going to, it can't become a burden like that. But that's to miss the point. When is the worship of God, when should the worship of God ever feel like a burden? Isn't that like indicating something about our hearts? Right? So, anyway, that's, I know I didn't teach the confession. I sort of just started yelling out of my own conviction. I'm yelling at myself because my conscience is not completely clear on this. I either need to take an exception to this section of the, the um, confession before the presbytery or change my behavior. That's what has to happen. So... Um, and all of, all of you will want me in those sermons to come out and say, here's what you can do and what you can't do. And that's what I have vowed not to do. I will not do that. I will give you principles, and then you have to use your own conscience. Anyway, we're way over. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, your Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. I pray that we would delight in you. I pray that we would delight to think about you, to worship you, to sing your praises, to pray to you, and that this day would be a day of rest and worship. Father, in that our worship would be our rest. Lord, I pray that as we are freed from worldly employments and recreations, that we would be thrilled that we now have that time to come to you, our Father, and receive good gifts from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.